0: This would be a good time for the shameless plug of the U version bible app because that bible app has all of the notes that are usually up on the screen so it also has our fill in the blank for this morning everything is a blank right now but our fill in the blank is about wisdom and we have this beautiful sentence that we've put together and the third word is blank if that helps it doesn't help the first two words Wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. Wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. And throughout the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes, which we're in chapter 4 this morning, Solomon gives us insight into a world and a mindset and a philosophy without Christ. And a, a life that is without God, at the heart of it, is a life of hopelessness, but it also is a life of great sadness. Because no matter how advanced you might think life is getting, how good life might be at the moment, you know that at at any moment, it can all be taken away from you. Your day can be changed, your day can be ruined, it can fall apart completely. Sadness is at the heart of a worldview and a system without God. And this morning, we're going to see that sadness on absolute full display. It was uh, Charlie Chaplin that once said, I always like walking in the rain. Why do you think he likes walking in the rain? Because it hides my crying. I always like walking in the rain because it hides the fact that I'm crying. He said, and I think people definitely approach life that same way, where they are so full of sadness and disappointment in their life for what their life has become or what has happened to them. They have nowhere else to turn. They only have their own imagination and their life is filled with sadness and they try everything they can to hide it. They hide it through drugs. They hide it through alcohol. They hide it through relationships. They hide it through entertainment, they hide it through sports, they hide it through school, they hide it through work. They hide it any way they can so that they seem normal to everyone else, except everybody is walking through the rain. Everyone is uncomfortable and drenched with life. And they're all inside if they have a moment that they can be serious about themselves and serious about where they're at in life, will admit their life is sad. It's not what they wanted. It's not what they hoped for. It's not what they expected. It's not what they were promised. They were promised if they work hard, go to school, they'll succeed, and life will be good. But many have gone through that entire process and end up at the end of life sad, filled with tears, filled with regret, filled with despair, filled with with sadness. And Solomon picks up on this in chapter 4, and he starts by saying in the first few verses, again, I saw all the oppression that are, all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort Have you ever been oppressed? I'm not quite sure if we're using that term, if we can apply it to ourselves in the same way that Solomon saw it. Oppressed, that is having no rights, no privileges, no say at all in life, being abused and taken advantage of at every step and turn for your entire life. People have experienced that. I don't think we have. Our biggest inconvenience is, oh my goodness, I have to stand six feet away from someone. Oh my goodness, I had to wear a mask. Oh my goodness, I have to take my shoes off when I go to the airport through the security line. We don't have a lot of oppression that we engage in compared to those who are truly suffering at the hands of a tyrant. And Solomon's conclusion of that is a world without God, a life without God, a heart without God, there is no one you can turn to. You are on your own. There is no one there. No help from above. No one to comfort them. They are completely on their own. The oppressors get to have free reign. And those that are oppressed go to sleep, wake up the next day, and they're oppressed. And they go through that day, they go to sleep, they wake up the next morning, and they are oppressed. They are Pressured from outside forces, from people and events, and they have no one to comfort them. He continues and says, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Solomon's conclusion is when I see the oppression in this world, however, that oppression is seen and experienced, he goes, It's better off to be dead. Because at least you're not waking up the next morning and having to deal with oppression. At least you're not sad. At least you're not being taken advantage of. It's better off being dead. Now, we know that if you have a life without God, a life void of religious life before God, a life void of faith, a life void of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, we know that death is not a rescue. Death is not a break death is not a welcomed event in a person's life it is the most terrifying moment that that person moves from life to death knowing that there is no hope and they face god as judge as we saw last week but from a human perspective they don't have to go through the pains of oppression in life anymore the sadness and cycle of tears any longer the crying the agony the despair from our perspective the dead kind of have it easy They don't have to deal with this anymore. Solomon continues in verse 3 and says, but better, there's still a group that's better off than those who are living and those who are dead. He says, but better than both is he who has not yet and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He says it's better off for those people who have not yet been born because they've not experienced the pains and sufferings and agonies of a life without God, and they haven't experienced death, the final terror of judgment before God. Those who are not yet born have it better off than those who are alive and those who have died. Not a great, great outlook on life, but that is the heart of the outlook of those who are living without God and faith in Jesus Christ. They may fool themselves for a while. They may find some rescue in eating, drinking, and being merry, and dancing, and have all the fun and vacations they want, and all the stuff that they want, and all the accolades they want. But there comes a time where they face God. And Solomon says, at those moments when they are alone with their own thoughts before God, It is far better had they not been born. So they did not experience the sadness of this life, the oppression of this life, the repetitiveness of this life. Verse 5, or actually verse 4, Then I saw that all the toil and all skill in work come from man's envy, his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. So, as he returns back to the living, he says, All of that work you do, all of those things that you acquire, they're acquired generally through envy. They have it, I want it. Wow. You know, you pass a beautiful neighborhood and you go, I wonder what it takes to live in this neighborhood. There, there's a YouTube channel that um, has this guy going up to these incredibly large houses mansions. And his whole YouTube video channel is about asking these people who have these extremely expensive cars, extremely expensive homes, and he asked them, quite honestly, how did you become rich? How did you get this house? How did you get this car? And I'm telling you, out of of the several that I've watched, he interviews maybe 10 or 15 different families each video. The vast majority of them, vast majority of them, are I stayed in school, I worked an extra job during school, I worked more jobs in college, I got a great education, I took advantage of every opportunity I had, I worked hard, I started my own business, it succeeded, it failed, I started another one, it succeeded, I sold it, and I'm working on another company. Very few times do you hear in those interviews, oh, my mommy and daddy gave me all this money. It is almost always, I went to school, I found an incredible business opportunity, and I worked my butt off 60 hours a week. And I'm still working that hard to have what I have. No one gave it to me. I earned every bit of it. And they come from every walk of life. And you look at that, and you go, wow, if I did that, I could have that yacht private airplane, that house, that summer house, that extra third summer house. And we get motivated by what someone else has. And Solomon says, yeah, that's nothing new. That's not a 20th century marketing gimmick that they all of a sudden came up with to show you something beautiful and say, you need it. Your life will be happy if you had what your neighbor had. That has been part of human nature, a life without God from the very beginning. Envy and jealousy, which, by the way, led to the very first murder. Envy and jealousy. Cain and Abel. Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God. Cain, his brother, was upset that somehow Abel had a nice relationship with God. He was envious of it and killed him. So that envy and jealousy has been part of our human nature. And Solomon says, it keeps on going. It doesn't end. This is vanity, foolishness, repetitiveness, a rut that humanity is stuck in. The opposite of that, envy that leads to work, that leads to human uh, worldly riches, is found in verse five. Verse five says, the fool, the fool, Folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What do you think that's in reference to? What happens if you don't work? Well, you should starve. You should have nowhere to live. You should be out on the streets. You should have nothing. You should fall apart. You should deteriorate. You should not thrive and survive. If you refuse to work, if you fold your hands and say, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it, no surprise that it is just like you are eating your own flesh. You're consuming yourself because you have nothing else to consume. So the opposite of that envy driving you to envious thoughts and the cycle of riches, 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 the opposite of that is I'm not going to do anything, just sit here with my hands in my pocket, fold my hands, and let life happen. Well, you know what happens? Is you die you end up starving to death verse 6 better better than striving for envy better than just not eating at all and working at all better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind Solomon says it's so much better so much better if I kind of just pay attention to myself and take care of myself instead of opening up myself to a world of other people hurting. From a, from, now, this, remember, is from the perspective of someone without God, someone from the perspective that has no relationship with Jesus Christ. It's better that they just stay to themselves than possibly engage in the lives of others where they will be hurt and people hurt people don't they they hurt people sometimes without even knowing it but sometimes they are purposeful in that hurt and Solomon is saying life is so filled with hurt from the oppressors, from our own sinfulness in striving after things that are not lasting that adding another person to that mix can certainly, Add to the hurt. So he says it's far better in a world without Christ as your Lord and Savior that you just simply are satisfied with what you have. Otherwise, it could lead to more turmoil. But he makes a switch here in verse 7. He makes a switch because I'm not sure he realizes all I'm talking about is depressing things. I don't think he's coming to the realization, oh, I need to give them something encouraging because. I've been for three chapters now really hammering them about how terrible life is without God, how selfish it is, how envious it is, how futile it is, how full of vanity it is, how irresponsible it is, how hopeless it is, how sad it is, how depressing it is, how death is not even a welcomed addition to life. I don't think he's really thinking he needs to give us some encouragement, but he does. And unfortunately... Oh, and I have been guilty of this, so I'm allowed to say this. Unfortunately, the next few verses, outside of chapter 3 in the bird song, turn, 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 these are the most famous verses of Ecclesiastes. And for some reason, they tend to be the go-to verses for weddings. Because these verses have nothing to do with weddings. It has nothing to do with a husband and wife relationship. It is all based on this relationship that in the past, it's better to be alone because adding someone to the mix could be hurtful. But he sees that there is value in friendship. So he throws this in, not about marriage, but about the opposite of being alone and trying to strive on your own. He says in verse 7, all the way down, we're going to go to verse uh, uh, 12 in this. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun, uselessness, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So he looks at life and says, it doesn't even matter if I do stay alone and not open myself up to being hurt by others, because in the end, everything I have by myself leads to no pleasure. One of the, one of the little part-time side hobbies that my wife and I have... Um, are going to estate sales. I don't know if you've ever been to an estate sale where you walk into somebody's house and everything in their house is for sale. Everything. And I want you to imagine for a brief second that when you went home today to your house, you know which house I'm talking about, your house, all of a sudden there is a line of people going in and out of your house carrying your stuff away taking it away. But they're paying somebody for it. But they're not paying you for it. Every estate sale that I go into, I have this eerie feeling that at one point in time, maybe weeks before, this house was secure. And this person kept everything safe. But now they're dead. They're gone. Every drawer is opened up. Every closet is opened up. Every room is on full display. And everything that person owned can be bought for a price. Everything. Now you might get a good deal on this side. But on the other side, on that person's side, it's all Solomon says, even that, the idea of holding everything for yourself, is vanity, foolishness, and useless. It accomplishes nothing. It's like a vapor in the wind. It's here and gone. That drawer that you thought was precious, that filing cabinet that you thought was precious, that stuff that you thought was precious, it is sometimes, ultimately, do you know what happens to the stuff that doesn't sell? Thrown in the trash. Dumpsters. But it was precious to that person. They earned it. They bought it. They saw value in it. But it's gone. Yay, I'm alive for the day. I'm dead and all my stuff is thrown away. What has it accomplished for that person? That person had memories of that stuff. I've seen family photo albums for sale. Five bucks. Five bucks, and I can buy an entire family's worth of memories through pictures. Their family didn't want it. They may not have had family. Really? The entirety of every memory they've had growing up with their parents and grandparents, and their kids and their cousins, their friends, five bucks. And it can be yours. That's why Solomon can say, a life without God, without Christ at the center as your Lord and Savior, no matter if you acquire everything you possibly can imagine and you keep up with your neighbor or you keep to yourself and not let anyone in and you save it all for yourself, it is all vanity in the end. All sold, given away, or thrown away. And then he moves into that encouraging part. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. Two can accomplish much more than one. On one you can do it your way and you don't have to fuss with anyone trying to do it their way. But with two, you can accomplish so much more. Just in general labor, in thought, in emotions, in in relationships, in work, in pleasure, in sports, whatever it is, you can accomplish so much more when there are two people with the same mindset, same go-to attitude, you can accomplish a lot. He continues on that theme and says, For if they fall, one will lift up the fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and he has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. See, there is value in life together. Whether it's marriage or any other type of friendship, relationship, there is value and benefit being in life together because when one is down, the other might bring them up. When one is up, they might be able to help you along. When there is threat, two are a better response to that threat than one alone. I think Solomon realizes that people can come to the conclusion, even those that walk with God, Is there really a point to all of this? Solomon throws in some sunshine here and says, yes, there is a beautiful point to this. And it is something that Paul brings up in Galatians chapter 6. And in Galatians 6, Paul says in verse 2, because this is a biblical Christian principle, he says, um, well, first of all, let me get the context. Verse 1 gives us the context of, of this working together it says brother if anyone is caught in a transgression if anyone is caught sinning you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted see there is a real phenomenon that happens when we see someone sinning when we see someone sinning something naturally happens within us as humans One of the things that can happen is that thief, that good-for-nothing, drugged-out thief, that oh, thrown in prison and forget the key. We can become very harsh with the person, very harsh, very judgmental, wanting to throw the letter of the law and every other law at him as much as we possibly can. The other response could be, humanly speaking, a life without God. Oh, man, he got away with that. I should try that. Yeah, I'd probably get away with it too because I'm a lot smarter than them. I mean, the guy, obviously I'm talking about the guy who broke in over the weekend. Garbage bags. Why would you steal garbage bags? Why would that be on your mind? So I'm not talking about that, like, oh, I can't wait to go rob someone of their garbage bags, but there is a sense in which we go, oh, man, he got away with it. Maybe I could get away with it. But the Christian way of understanding someone in sin is not to be judgmental, to throw the book at them, and not to want to join them in their sin, but to look at it and say, how can I restore that person? How can I, with gentleness... Not harshness and condemnation, but how can I with gentleness come alongside this person and restore them, encourage them to do what is good and right and beautiful before God? How can I be used to turn that person from a life of sin to a life of glory? How can I be involved in that transition to godliness and faith? Because he says in verse 2 of chapter 6 of Galatians, our responsibility in this, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Carry one another. Help one another. Love on the person who is suffering, who is caught, who is, who is undone with life, who wants to give up on life. Bear with them. Come alongside them. Help them. And that's more than just saying, hey, I wish you well. It definitely starts with prayer. It definitely starts with compassion and gentleness and forgiveness and mercy. Not excusing their sin, but also understanding it is but for the grace of God that I am not stealing from churches. It is but the grace of God that I am not breaking into cars and stealing. It is by the grace of God that I do not have to go through trials of pain and sorrow by myself. It is by the grace of God that he has put me in a community and fellowship of believers. It is by the grace of God that I have Christ in my life as Lord and Savior, where I do not have to look at life as vanity foolishness, hopelessness, sadness, contempt, envy, or despair. And neither do you. You have been bought with a price that is ultimately worth far more than all the riches of this world combined. You were bought with the Son. His blood, His life, his perfection, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Bear one another's burdens, because in doing so, you fulfill the whole law of Christ. So maybe next time, instead of us looking at someone who is sinning, which, if we're around anybody, we see it, You turn on the news, you see it. You turn on entertainment, you see it. It's everywhere. We always will be seeing people sinning. So instead of casting judgment upon that person, if we remind ourselves of the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 4 and ourselves of what Paul says in, uh, um, what's the book? Galatians 6. I, I actually could have just looked here at my notes, but that would have been simple. We can approach life with that person who does not know Christ so differently by bringing them the gentleness of the gospel that will transform them and change them. They don't need prison. They need salvation by a savior first and foremost. And when we do life like that together, I think it takes away the pain and sufferings of the sadness that this world can bring. But Solomon does continue and ends the chapter, not on a high note, but another low note. He says in verse 13, Better again was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So he says there's two, there's two people here in this story, in this verse. There is a fool and a young poor person, and there is a king. And he says it's far better to be that young person than the old person who knows it all. Now oftentimes we think that kids know it all, right? Oh, kids know it all. But I'm, I'm talking to people who are 30 and above right now realize that we do know it all right right so he's looking at this scenario and going once you reach that King status which none of us have but once you reach reach that place where you are king all of a sudden who's gonna tell us what to do a life without God's redeeming grace in our hearts we become this citadel of I'm the king, how dare you tell me what to do? He says, so it's far better to be a youth and foolish and poor and have no idea what life is going to bring than to be someone who is so set in their way. As a king, they cannot be counseled. He continues in verse 14: For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. So there's advancement. He went from small to large, and I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. He observed it all. He saw all of life, and he experienced what it was like to be a kid and king. He experienced it all. And his conclusion was in verse 16, there was no end of all the people. All of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. I think Solomon's question is, So, you became king. And? And I know the rest of the story. You became king. You had rule and reign over all the land. You had all the possessions you could imagine. And like Solomon, you had all the wives you could imagine. All the wealth and power you could imagine. And no one could tell you what to do. And the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, he died. And all of his stuff was sold off. And years and years later, No one could remember what he was like. And all they could remember was a faint name when they were born and when they died. And it passes in time. And it's done with. And it's over. And a new king rises up. And they err down. Another king rises up. And they fall. Another king rises up. And they die. And so on and so forth. For every generation to come so what is the benefit of striving to become king for the role of king itself without God it accomplishes nothing there is still a life of vanity there is still a life of envy there is still a life of sinfulness there is still a life of pain and sorrow and suffering there is still agony and Solomon's advice would be the same oh far better you had not been born than to experience the sadness, loneliness cycle of life unfulfilling as it is without God but I will not leave you with such a depressing thought I would love to turn your attention to the book of Revelation the book of Revelation and The seventh chapter. And I got to start reading at verse 9. I'm going to read through verse 17. And uh, you don't have to turn there. Listen to these words. Close your eyes. Think about them. Because these are true of you and I in Christ. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. If you want to know purpose in life your life verse and goal what you should be striving at more than anything else is making sure you have a relationship with this God through the lamb in such a way that your future is not futile that your future is not full of vanities that your future is not cyclical born live die born live die born live die that your name is not forgotten that your possessions no longer hold meaning to you. But what does hold meaning to you is your relationship with God through the Lamb, through Jesus Christ. A life like that is not meaningless. It is not vain. It is not foolish. Whether you are poor and young or rich and a king, that relationship and that goal is the one that creates joy, peace, happiness, satisfaction, meaning to this life. Let's pray. Our Father, you are glorious and majestic. You are holy and true. And Lord, oftentimes we are caught in the cycle of this life and distracted by its pains, its sorrows, it's envies, it's jealousies, it's wisdom, it's futileness, it's entertainment. Help us, Father, to be focused on that relationship with the Lamb that you have promised to wipe away our tears, to shelter us, to give us peace, to give us life. And may we then, Father, be examples to the world around us the people next to his name and to his glory. All of God's people said,